Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, Episode 13. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we're going to be talking about ethnography, videography, and public anthropology. So today we have Dr. Sean Gant on the podcast. And Dr. Gant is the acting director of education at Crow Canyon Archaeological Center. After receiving his PhD at the University of New Mexico, he was a postdoctoral fellow at Brown University and Indiana University. He specializes in visual and public anthropology from ethnographic, archaeological, and documentary film perspectives in the southeastern and southwestern United States. His dissertation focused on Choctaw lifeways and cultural preservation. He is of Choctaw descent. So welcome to the show, Sean. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, I've been wanting to have Sean on the show for a while. First of all, just because... I'm an ethnographer, and so it's always nice to get to, to have another ethnographer on the show. And it's nice, too, because Sean actually has, he's actually done a field school in archaeology. So he's, he's got a lot of background in ethnography and archaeology, cultural preservation, education, all, all around across the board. So I guess where I, I'd like to get started today is just... I mean, growing up, what, what got you interested in, in this kind of, of work? Yeah, so I mean, the, the first thing that kind of drew me to anthropology was really um, growing up trying to understand my own situation and my own kind of uh, where I fit into things. And uh, growing up, I uh, participated in the uh, intertribal powwow scene, you know, and uh, I'm a grass dancer. But I didn't grow up in Mississippi. I didn't grow up in uh, Choctaw communities. So my experience um, when I was younger was more kind of from the perspective of uh, being involved in more like uh, pan-Indian or pan-tribal kind of activities like powwow. And uh, I always found myself kind of in the position of being a phenotypically fairly white-looking individual who participated in the intertribal powwow scene and trying to negotiate uh, my own identity and how I fit into that space. And so I feel like I was an ethnographer from the very early days of my life, you know, trying to understand those things. And um, I honestly didn't even know it was called anthropology until I got into college to, uh, cause I, you know, I'd never really heard that term before, but uh, I also took, I was in a uh, kind of special program at my high school that was uh it was interesting because it was an integrated thing where we had multiple teachers who worked together. It was called the discover program. And the idea was that the different classes kind of fed into each other and they were kind of jointly taught. And, and uh, anyways, uh, um, one of my teachers, uh, Bill strong d- had a class called theory of knowledge. And, uh, for my kind of final project, I did, a, I did, a it, what I would call a, 
cross-cultural kind of <laughs> anthropological project where I was looking at concepts of death and dying from three different cultural perspectives. So that was the first time I ever did anything like actual anthropology, but I feel like I've been doing anthropology and ethnography and, and just deep people watching my entire life. Yeah. So that's kind of how I got into the, the field a little mm -hmm. bit. So when you basically, when you got to college, was there sort of a moment when you were like, Hey, wait a second. This is an actual thing that people do. And yeah, because I, I when I started at uh, Davidson College, where I went for undergrad, I thought I was going to be a biologist. And so I was taking a lot of biology classes. And uh, because it's a liberal arts um, college, I, you know, there are requirements for taking other courses in other fields. And so I took a course on human evolution Um And that was, and that was with uh, Dr. Bill Ringle there at Davidson. And so that was the first time I took, uh, honest to goodness, like anthropology class, mm -hmm. but I found it was very similar to what we had been doing in that theory of knowledge class in, in high school. And so I really, um, got into it at that point and really, uh, started taking a lot more anthropology classes and then kind of moved from biology to anthropology, mm -hmm. at, you know, in college. So, and then from there, What made you go in the specific direction within anthropology that you you ended up going in? I mean, because you kind of dabbled in a lot of a lot of everything. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think this is true of a lot of people that you meet that are in kind of um, archaeological interpretation or education or, or some of these other types of fields. Um, it, it, it's not always a real clear path to this kind of career. Um, so I kind of dabbled around with a lot of different things and. I'd say the the single most direct connection was that while I was in grad school, I um, I got a position with the Forest Service, uh, basically being an interpreter, but um, managing the Tejeres Pueblo um, site out in uh, east of Albuquerque. And so uh, while I was working for the Forest Service, I got training in kind of uh, Park Service style interpretation and got involved in a lot of those kind of projects. And that was the first time I really got um involved in kind of archaeological education or interpretation. Before that, I, you know, most of my training had been in cultural anthropology and Native American studies, which is really what my degree from UNM is kind of a hybrid between Native studies and, and anthropology, because three out of the four committee members on my dissertation committee were actually either joint appointments in Native studies and anthropology or directly from Native studies. And that, that's the whole reason I went to, to UNM anyways, was because it had um, a strong Native Studies and Anthropology departments. Uh -huh. So, but yeah, so working for the Forest Service got me into kind of working with archaeology mm -hmm. and uh, specifically doing archaeological interpretation and, and education. And I found it to be really rewarding because um, if you really think about it, waiting till people are adults to kind of engage them in this conversation about why archaeology matters, why you know, pr protecting our shared history matters. If you wait till they're adults, they already have a lot of preconceived notions and kind of baked in ideas. But I think if you can um, catch those people when they're young, and specifically when they're kids, mm -hmm. and, and do these kind of programs, I, I want to believe that that sets them up to be more open to thinking about these things throughout their life. And then once they become adults and are voting and um, participating in civil society and, and, you know, having impacts on these things that they've had a lot longer to think about and, and um, 
and they're not quite as uh, opposed or, you know, have such preconceived notions baked into mm-hmm. to their kind of way of thinking about those things. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important to do that. Right. So is that um, basically what led you to working at Crow Canyon? Yeah. So um, like you said, and and when you were reading my my bio, after I finished, you know, at at UNM, I did bounce around and do a couple of different uh, postdoctoral fellowships. And um, when this opportunity at Crow Canyon came up, when I when I saw the announcement for this position, I was really excited because I felt like it was going back to kind of what I was doing for the Forest Service, but on a much larger scale and with uh, a lot more infrastructure and uh, right resources behind it it's it's sort of like what i was doing at Harris, but like mm-hmm. supercharged so right. i was really excited to get back into that type of work um and also uh i i began to learn more about the uh certainly the research one university system and how that works as a faculty member mm-hmm. uh, doing those those postdocs and um you know, I think something like this, this is a little more grounded um, and where I'm working with the public, I think is probably where kind of where my my heart is. Not to say that the academic world's there's anything wrong with that, but it is it's very intense and it really is about research production and publication. Right. And, um, I, yeah, I think a lot of times less about actually making connections with people and changing people's minds or opening them up to new ideas so I found that a little bit difficult. Right, right. Um, but I had good experiences at both Brown and IU. But this opportunity, I, I thought, really fit in with what I wanted to do um, and how I thought I could make the the greatest contribution. So Right. So what what kind of contribution are you hoping to make at Crow Canyon? What would be your long-term goal for your work there? Well, so, I mean, the, the first thing is to, uh, you know, continue the, the programming that we have now and, and try to um, keep working on that and make that as good as possible and, and have that experience be the best it possibly can be for, for the folks that come, uh, whether they be kids or adults, to, to do our, our programs. So I guess actually before we go too far into it, maybe you should <laughs> explain what Crow Canyon is. Um, I feel like I've mentioned it maybe a little bit briefly on the podcast before, and we are hoping to also eventually um, have another interview on their American Indian program specifically. But um, maybe if you could give just kind of a general sure. general overview. Yeah, so Crow Canyon Archaeological Center is a research and education um, center. We focus on three main mission goals, uh, that being doing long-term archaeological research, uh, doing educational programs of all sorts, and working with um, local tribes and nations um, to do projects in their communities or that are of benefit to their community. So those are kind of our three main uh, mission areas. Um, and so I kind of run the education side of that. Um, and we have, uh, you know, 2000 or more kids a year come through on like school programs of, of various types, uh, anything from one day, um, just popping over for the day to full five day programs where the kids actually 
learn the archaeological process. They learn the methodology and the ethics behind uh, archaeology and actually get to participate in our ongoing uh, excavation projects. So um, we do a whole range of, of things. And in my side of uh, our, our center, we mainly focus on the, the kids and school groups. Um, and we also have teen camps and other activities like that in the summer. Um, but we also have uh, adult programs and uh, travel programs right. and uh, all sorts of different cool things. Yeah. And Lyle actually leads some of those mm -hmm. adult pro programs. So if you ever want to have an excuse to hang out with Lyle, go check out some of the, the adult Crow Canyon programs. <laughs> um, and, and I actually did a Crow Canyon, I think a five day program mm -hmm. when I was a kid and I can tell you for sure that that is the field trip by far that I most remember out of all of my schooling. So definitely <laughs> made an impression. Well, and that's, you know, and that's what I was, what I meant before when I said trying to catch um, folks when they're young, because I also went to, there's a place in North Carolina where I'm from called the Shield Museum. And they, they have some, um, they have kind of like a village set up in the back and there's a guy there that does friction fire making and flint napping and uh, stretches and tans hides and does all that so mm -hmm. i do remember that when i was a kid and thinking right. that that was super cool and um i mean if you've never seen somebody make a friction fire yeah the yeah. first time you see it it's kind of like magic and it, it seems right. like uh it's pretty amazing so anyway so that probably figures into how i ended up here as well yeah <laughs> So those kind of experiences when you're a kid, I think, are, are can be foundational, can be really impactful in your in your life. Right. Right. So, OK, so back to sorry, I cut you off there. No, right. Back to what you would like to do then. Now that everyone has a, a little bit of an understanding of what Crow Canyon does, what would you like to see the education program do? Right. So I think we, we do a lot uh, well already. Um, but some of the things that I think that we could put more more effort into or that we could continue to develop um, specifically is working with uh, Native American youth. And I think that's one of my key goals coming in. Um, I really want to develop some more tribally specific programming, do programming where it's a, a combination of efforts between us and um, groups from the various nations and, and tribes that we work with to actually build things together to address uh, deep foundational issues um, about growing up as a, as native kids in this country. Right. And so those aren't easy things to talk about. Uh, it gets into talking about historical oppression and trauma and how we heal and how we, um, you know, move forward in this world and, and what we can do. So I think those are not things that are super easy to, um, to get into. And I think it requires, you know, input from both sides. It can't just be Crow Canyon developing that kind of content and delivering it. Um, it has to be a combination and it's gotta be tribally specific. I think it's gotta, it's gotta tap into, um, the culture, the language, the ideas from that community as well. So I'd like to see us build those kind of hybrid programs that are really, um, specific for the group coming and not just a generic program that we run, you know, whatever school through, like I, I'd mm -hmm. like to kind of tailor some of those. Um, so those, those are a couple of things that I'd, I'd like to kind of see happen in the future. Um, 
you know, I think there's also a lot of room for the development of, of other types of programming at Crow Canyon. I think we have um, a really amazing facility there. We have a 170 acre residential campus with cabins and hogans and uh, hiking trails and uh, rooms like that can be used for, as a conference center, you know, so there's a lot that could be done there. And so I think, um, and we'll get into this probably more if you do the episode with Sharon and Dan, but um, what the American Indian initiatives department at Crow Canyon is doing. Um, I definitely see that the education department can work uh, hand in hand with that uh, and can really try to do things that are actually beneficial and, and are things that are needed in these um, tribal communities around our area. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's a good point. I think it's really easy on this podcast, for example, to um, generalize, you know, indigenous quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important to have those, those programs that are specific um, to each group and not not have that generalization of, of just, you know, native American quote unquote. Mm. Um, so I think that's a, that's an interesting point. So basically, yeah. Well, and I, th- I think, you know, talking about kind of my influences and how I came mm-hmm. to certain ideas, mm-hmm. uh, the other important thing to keep in mind with that too, is that, so after I had gone through kind of national park service style interpretation training and, and worked for the forest service, I then, when I was doing my dissertation research, actually worked for the tribe. So I worked for the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians. Uh, the At that time, it was called the uh, Cultural Affairs Program, and then it became the Cultural Preservation Program. Now it's the Department of Choctaw Emmy, which is just basically like the Department of Choctaw Culture or Lifeways. Um, and so taking that kind of model and that structure from the Park Service and then working for the tribe to actually develop uh, Choctaw specific kind of programming and interpretation um, is part of what led me down this path to thinking right. this way. Right. So um, having that experience of doing interpretation, both for the forest service and for the tribe, mm-hmm. I think has really informed the way I think about interpretation yeah. and education. So, yeah. And we could talk about that stuff. Yes. Yeah. We're going to have to take a real quick break, but I definitely want to get into the Choctaw stuff here in a minute. All right. We'll be right back. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back, and this week we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, we are back. And so we were starting to to talk about your dissertation. So if you want to tell us a little bit more about your work there. Yeah, so my dissertation is titled uh, Nantahoshata Imi, What Are Choctaw Lifeways? 
cultural preservation in the casino era this is the after the colon. And uh, so really what I was looking at was um, what does cultural preservation look like in the casino era? Uh, the Mississippi Choctaw have been very uh, effective and successful in all sorts of economic development, starting with manufacturing and then later moving into uh, various forms of resort and tourism development. So what I was initially interested in is, you know, how that plays out and what the implications for that are within kind of the, the cultural preservation programs there with the tribe. And so I was very fortunate in that um, as I was setting up my research, I was actually asked to uh, join the staff. So I was actually doing research and working uh, for the tribe. And um, one of the main projects that I really worked on for the tribe, I mean, it's tangentially re related to my dissertation, but was kind of a side project that I was really working on uh, for the tribe since I was, I was actually working full time <laughs> for the tribe while I was doing my research. Oh my God. Um, so it was based around uh, Naniwea, which is our, our sacred mother mound, which we got back from the state of Mississippi, uh, I believe in 2007 uh, was the official transfer. And so when I got there in 2009, we really were looking at what we wanted to do with the property, how we wanted to interpret the site. Uh, the interpretation that was there had really it was all, it was old and it was falling apart. And um, so there, there was a lot of work to be done. And that was one of the main projects that I worked on, um, f you know, in my position working for the cultural preservation program. Um, so it, it kind of relates to my dissertation, but it's also kind of separate. So is that something that the people can go visit today? Is there, is that set up or? Yeah, so the, the tribe um, restricts access to it to some degree, but um, the, the main mound site is right there on the road. And so people can stop and, and visit that. But uh, a part of the property came uh, because it was a, a state park before. Mm -hmm. So there's two, two kind of sides to the, to the property. So one was right there on the road that's visible as you drive by. And that's, mm -hmm. that's the, the flat top mound, the middle woodland flat top mound. Um, that most people think of as as the site as Naniwea, but um, over through the swamp, there's another um, really interesting geologic formation. It's, it's actually a natural cave system, and it's right next to the headwaters of the Pearl River. Mm -hmm. Which, based on my understanding of mm -hmm. woodland and Mississippian ar archaeology, is probably why Naniwea was built there. Um, you know, you often see those those mound sites located near caves, near uh, headwaters of, of rivers um, and, and those kind of features. So um, and, and Naniwea is really probably the most significant place in, in kind of Choctaw understanding because uh, all of our, our origin stories trace back to that specific place. Um, so it's a really important place and, uh, the cave and, and all the other, uh, things on the other side are from a Choctaw perspective, equally important to the actual like mound itself. Cause it's all a part of the same place to us. Um, 
so anyway, so trying to develop the interpretive plan and, and build a, a trail that connects the two sides and, and making interpretive signage and thinking about how to how best to use that space was a, a major project that I worked on for the tribe, um, which brings up a, a, another uh, kind of point, I guess, that I, I wanted to, to mention, which is I think if we're being really um, engaged or responsible ethnographers, researchers, what, you know, depending on what type of research you're doing, you have to think about what is beneficial for the group that you're working with, not just what you need for your dissertation, right? So there's lots of stuff that I did while I was working for the tribe that, I mean, sure, all of it relates to my dissertation and, and some of that stuff made it into the the final dissertation, but really, it's it's what I think of as as a form of research reciprocity, right? You know, what knowledge, skills, and abilities can you bring to bear on issues that that need uh, work done? You know, and sometimes that may be not at all related to your research, but it's something that I think is important to do because, in my opinion, that that's a part of being a good researcher is actually doing something that's of benefit to the community. Um, so it, it's often the case that our academic research um, strays away from those kind of goals and right, is more right. about, you know, interesting theoretical questions and, and all that kind of stuff. And that's great. And that's that's what will get you through and get your Ph.D. and get you an academic job. But that's not right. necessarily the most beneficial thing for the community that you're working with. So I, I always try to any kind of research project that I'm working on, I try to think, well, you know, what do I need for the academic side, but what do I also need to do to feel like I'm contributing something of value um, so that it's not just a one way. We're always taking knowledge. We're always taking information, but it's an actual exchange and it's much more reciprocal in nature, which fits more into kind of Choctaw beliefs and and, uh, ways of thinking about things in general. Right. Mm -hmm. So anyways, that's just a kind of point about, kind of research reciprocity and right. um, how to how to do that. I think it's really important. And I think oh, a lot of times it gets overlooked, mm-hmm. especially in, um, you know, anthropology and other disciplines that are coming from a very Western perspective. And, right. you right. know, that's not always something that's really considered and it's not something that you're necessarily going to be rewarded for in academia. But it, right. it's that doesn't mean it's not important to do. Right. Well, and not just in academia. I mean, in in the work that you guys are doing at Crow Canyon too, for example, that's a, a big focus, making sure that um, the communities are, are getting something back for, for their heritage contributing to your work, I guess is mm-hmm. the way I would put it. Um, so it's, yeah, not just research, but I guess in, in everything that we do in, in these, right. these kinds of fields. Well, I think that should be, that should be a fundamental question in any research design. Right. It's like, okay, well, we're doing this to answer this research question. We're doing right. this to deal with this theoretical concept mm-hmm. we're doing. and th- But there should also be that question of, okay, well, what are you doing that is of benefit to the, to the community and right. what are their actual interests? Like right. they may or may not be interested in your 300 page dissertation about <laughs> whatever random, very yeah. finite, very specific thing, uh-huh. you know, that may or may not be that useful right. for the community. So what could you do while you're, you know, working there? Right. 
Well, and this is one of the things that, um, that Sean and I have talked about a lot is that we both really value community-based participatory research as a, a methodology, which includes making sure that, that your research is, is beneficial to the community, but also this idea of making sure that the community is involved every step of the way, making sure that, you know, maybe they don't, like you said, maybe they don't want a dissertation coming back to them, but making sure that they're seeing what is written about them um, and not just, uh, you know, throwing this dissertation out to the world, not showing it to them, and then them finding out 10 years later that they really didn't like what you had to say about them. Um, you know, like the the case at ACMA not too long ago, for example. So, um, yeah, basically this this methodology, how do you feel like it's it's influenced your work um, and your, your dissertation perhaps. Yeah. So I, I think in kind of thinking about those other projects, um, that are useful, but then also I, th I think the other thing to keep in mind is, uh, I always like to say that it, anything you could write in a two, 300 page dissertation, you could also package as a documentary video product that's way more accessible. Mm -hmm. So I think the other thing is not, not just to think about uh, what type of research you're doing and how that benefits the community, but also how you are going to make that research accessible. Mm -hmm. And uh, I certainly don't think that video is the only way to do that, but I do think that uh, videography and documentary filmmaking can be a way to package research material into a more palatable or, or accessible format. Because um, let's be honest, I mean, most of us don't want to sit down and read a 300 page dissertation. Um, but there's a lot of information uh, that can be conveyed through other types, other other media types. So I, yeah, I, I always encourage people to consider alternative formats. Um, and for me personally, videography has been uh, probably the dominant dominant format that I, I've tried to use like that. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there's nothing to say that you can't be involved in creating a play that is around a research topic. I mean, one of the one of the things that we did while I was working for the cultural preservation program is we uh, wrote and performed a play about Choctaw history from the perspective of Naniwea. So the whole play was from the mountains perspective cool. and, uh, and it was performed at the Choctaw fair. And then again at the Naniwea day celebration, because it was so popular, they, people wanted to see <laughs> That's it. Awesome. So, I mean, you know, to me that that should be evaluated in, in a, a similar way as, um, writing an academic paper in jargon that nobody can understand. I mean, right. those things are important too. Mm -hmm. So, okay. I mean, both of those sound really interesting. I love the play example. That's amazing. Uh, especially because then I imagine you were engaging community members. They were the ones like, yeah, they were, the, they were the actors. They uh -huh. were the, the, it was written by community members. Awesome. Um, you know, I, I worked in the props department, you know, like, <laughs> So. Yes. Um, so, yeah, between that and then also just videography always seems like such a, a popular method and something that tribes, um, from my experience, seem to want to participate in because it's something they feel like they can get their kids to sit down and pay attention to 
Um, you know, like you put somebody on a screen and all of a sudden they're famous, mm-hmm. you know, like they're elder and all of a sudden there's a different relationship there. Mm-hmm. Um, so what would you recommend um, to people wanting to do a little bit more of a, a different format, like you're saying, like mm-hmm. a like a play or a, um, a video? How do you how do you make something like that happen? Well, it, it, you know, it can be tough and it can, um, it really involves a lot of conversations with, mm-hmm. with people and see what people are interested in and what they're comfortable with. I mean, the other thing, the flip side of, of video is that a lot of times, as soon as the camera comes out, people are more hesitant to speak, right? Cause it's, right. it's a recording format that, that's more obvious. Mm-hmm. A lot of times if you're, if you're doing an interview like we're doing right now and you have a microphone, sure. We're aware the microphone's there, but it's, right. it's not the same thing as having a camera yeah. pointing, pointing right. at you. So um, one of the things that I, I think is if you're going to be effective in doing visual anthropology and, and um, video recording interviews and, and things like that is it can't be the first interaction. You've got to really yeah. get to know the people you're going to interview um, in multiple arenas beforehand. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then also be open to the fact that not everybody's going to feel comfortable with that or, or want to engage in that type of research practice. So, um, it can be a little bit tough and it takes a lot of time and, and, but all good ethnography takes a lot of setup and time, right? I mean, right. you never walk into a situation and do an ethnographic research and just like hit the ground and start running. Usually it's not till you've been in the field, living in the community for like a year or so that you start getting um, a deeper level of information. People trust you more. So like any other ethnographic process, it just takes a lot of groundwork and setup. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, thinking about what the, what the end product is, you know, I think a lot of people when they start with videography, just think, well, I'll just shoot everything and then I can pick through it and, and edit later. Right. But, but really, that's not the best way to go about it. Um, you really want to have some idea of what the product you're making is and and what, you know, and what's necessary for that end product as you're shooting instead right. of the old approach of just record everything and then, you know, Find cobble something, something together <laughs> out of it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that might mean that you do interviews with people or at least do a first round of interviews with people and then go back and maybe have certain things that you talk about in the first round of interviews that you then come back to in a much more structured way. Right. um, Right. For kind of the purposes of the end product. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can feel kind of like weird sometimes asking people to repeat things or to rephrase things or or whatever, but it will uh, benefit the end product of the video you're making immensely if if you take the time to do those things right yeah and and sean has quite a bit of experience doing videography in different formats not just the specific setting that we're talking about and i'll include his website about his his videography work in the show notes as well but um another consideration that i'd, I'd be interested to get your perspective on in terms of of doing videography or something related like that like a podcast say um is this concept of informed consent. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, so 
um, for example, another another aspect other than just informed consent is you know sending. Do you send videos back, for example? Um, how do you how do you handle some of those tricky subjects? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that is a, a good point. Um, regardless of how you're doing your research, I think having people have the opportunity to look over either transcripts or videos or whatever it is you're you're producing um, is is an important component of that. I mean, even if you're just audio recording, right. you know, letting people either read the transcripts or listen to it or, or whatever, I think that's an important um, process that, that we need to do. Uh, and then, you know, giving people the right to censor certain things like, mm-hmm. oh, I, I, you know, I went more into that than I really should have. I, I really right. don't want that out there right. and, and taking that seriously. And, you know, sometimes it's tough because it's like something that somebody wants to pull back might be like a crucial piece yeah. that you need for the research you're doing that right. really it's like the way they said that encapsulates exactly Everything. what you were trying to get mm-hmm. to. But if they don't feel comfortable with it being out there then that's not being a responsible researcher if you, right. if you keep it in there against their wishes. Like that's right. You know, well, and you know, you're not gonna, <laughs> you're certainly never going to work with those people ever again at the, at the bare well, minimum right, right. and um, tribes talk. So, right. well, and the other thing is, is not only informed consent, but especially when you get to uh, doing video work, the, the issue of anonymity always right, comes right. up. Right. Um, because it's one thing if you're taking excerpts or quotes from a transcript and trying to make that anonymous, it's a whole other ball game when you have video of somebody. And I mean, there are ways to, you know, blur people's face or, or set up the lighting so that you can't really see their face. But, you know, let's be honest, nobody wants to sit and watch a documentary. That's all that, you know, unless unless it's, that's a part of the theme of the, the piece is, is kind of about something being secret or or something like that. And it serves a larger purpose. Right. So that is always a tricky thing. And, you know, I think that the, um, the IRB process is really important, but what I found in doing my dissertation research, uh, is that, the IRB at the University of New Mexico, at least, I, I can't speak for all IRBs, but is set up. And from, that's the, the Institutional Review Board. It's part of the human subjects um, process just to make sure that that um, that researchers, when they're working with human beings, are doing it in an ethical manner. Right. And so a lot of that kind of background comes out of a biomedical research model. And so some of these things like... Um, you know, the, the assumption of that you're going to make everybody anonymous in your research, that you're, you know, that right. you're going to do written informed consent right, forms, right. all those kind of things are based on a very biomedical kind of type of research. And they may or may not be appropriate right. in the research you're doing. Right. So I had a bit of a hard time getting the IRB at UNM to sign off on waiving written consent, right, right. which was a big one, mm-hmm. um, and doing just verbal consent recorded right. on whatever medium I was right. you know, using for the interview. That was one that they, they struggled with understanding why I wanted to do it that way. Um, but if anyone has any history of or knowledge of <laughs> native history, you know, signing documents has not always led yes, to the greatest results. And sometimes it makes people very uncomfortable right. um, and can really interfere, 
uh, interfere with the interview process. Right. Um, so I did verbal consent. The other thing was because I was shooting video, mm-hmm. uh, there was no way I could guarantee uh, anonymity. So um, I wanted it to be set up where research participants had the choice whether they wanted to be anonymous or not. And uh, they could change their mind at any point. So if later right. down the road right. they wanted to become anonymous before, you know, right. up until the publication of the, or, you know, like the right. dissertation was finalized. So, those, but those are tricky issues and they are spe- specifically come up in this type of a research process. So, right. And everybody kind of wrestles with them in their own ways. But yeah, it's, it's really tricky when you have um, a setting like IRB where it's, like you're saying, it's based on a, a biomedical Euro-American model mm-hmm. that it's it's really there for good reasons and to do good things, but in practice, um, it can it can cause other kinds of mm-hmm. ethical issues. So it's well, it's tricky. And, and the other the other side of the um, anonymity issue mm-hmm. is if you're interviewing somebody and you're saying what they have to say is valuable. Right. They may want their name attached to it. They may right. want credit right. for the things right. they say. And so, you know, right. I, I think it's interesting that a lot of times in research, we just um, we make people anonymous without even giving them the option of getting credit for right. the the valuable knowledge that they're contributing to the research. Right. So that's another issue uh, uh, right. that kind of gets into that. That's not right. necessarily video specific. Right. And that that's come up quite a bit in the work that we do with tribes specifically requesting that names be included because a, first of all, most of the people that I work with, for example, are through cultural preservation departments. They're authorized on behalf of the tribe um, to speak for that tribe culturally. So they want to show that this is coming from a legitimate source, not just, you know, um, any person that um, maybe claims that they have that kind of ancestry. We can get into identity and stuff like that but um but yeah it it can be it can be very important to tribes to to have that person attached but on that note we are at our second break so we will be back in a moment waiting on a tax return hopefully it ends up in your hands fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30 percent in 2023 if you're in a bind this tax season lifelock can help Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. And we are back. So, okay, we were just talking about human subjects or be form consent, things like that, about how the structure within anthropology can sometimes not quite fit in a Native American indigenous setting. So I guess I want to move a little bit on to some of the 
the larger issues within anthropology and, and how we can improve uh, as a discipline and be more inclusive. And actually, you know, it was kind of interesting. I I was looking through Twitter <laughs> the other day and um, I think it was at Archeomapper who was tweeting from the, the SHAs and she was tweeting about this session on, Oh shoot. I, I want to say it was um, decolonizing archaeology, something along those lines, kind of a session. But one, one point that someone made within the session that she was tweeting was that focusing on diversity and inclusion within anthropology is, is not really enough and that we need to be focusing first on anti-racism within mm. anthropology or basically just um, it's, it's not enough to just get more diverse people into anthropology. We need to fix the basics that are there right now first. Um, so just, I guess, starting with that curious, <laughs> <laughs> curious to hear um, your thoughts on, on anthropology as a discipline, especially since you've done a lot with, with uh, native American studies as well. Yeah. Um, on on how you think that we can improve as a discipline? Yeah, so, um, you know, I started in anthropology, and even though uh, in grad school, most of my dissertation committee members were coming out of either uh, Native Studies or Native Studies and Anthropology kind of uh, position, uh, I, I chose to remain within anthropology. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because I think in terms of uh, methodology, it's really strong. I think ethnography mm -hmm. is a really powerful tool uh, to tell people's stories. And, um, and, and it's a level of engagement in, in the research process that's deeper than most other types of uh, research methodologies. So I think it lends itself honestly to doing that kind of engaged uh, research. Now the history of the discipline though has, I mean, I, I don't think anybody would uh, disagree that anthropology has a very colonial kind of uh, right. beginning and has, has remained that way uh, quite a bit, I'd say uh, even to, to this day. So there definitely are aspects of the history of anthropology that make it sometimes feel not like necessarily a safe space for uh, native indigenous or other uh, minority folks. You know, right. um, I don't think anthropology has always done the best job of, of reaching out and cultivating relationships with those communities. It's tended to be, the researcher subject type binary um, right. situation. And I think that's one of the things that's really important with, you know, the development of indigenous archaeology or other strains of, of kind of research practices and, and ideas within anthropology. Um, so I, I think we're making good progress in that direction. But yeah, it's not just about well, can we hire another native person in or, or in this department or can we get another native grad student in this? Because um, until some of those fundamental practices and ideas within the discipline start to shift, mm -hmm. um, yeah, you may have those folks in those departments, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the research that's being done 
is is really changing all that much. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of a lot of room um, for change and development and growth there with, within the the larger uh, academic discipline of, of anthropology. And I think you know one of the things is going back and really honoring. Uh, revisiting our history and honoring those indigenous people that really made huge contributions to uh, that earlier research that oftentimes is is not even acknowledged. You know, a lot of times people are listed as informants or whatever. But, you know, when you really go back and look at it, those people were actually driving a lot of the research that was being done. And I mean, right. whether you're talking like Lewis Henry Morgan or like Boaz or whoever, like, mm-hmm they all could not have done the research they did without certain individuals who really facilitated their, their research. And, and in a lot of cases informed the research questions and, and the, you know, define the research project. So I think a lot of times those people go unnamed or don't get the same level of credit. So I think that's one place to start is yeah. like really looking at our history um, and acknowledging how important that has been. And then also like has, the early native ethnographers. Somebody taken the time and, and started working on a project like that. Uh, yeah. There, there have been uh, folks that have worked on those kind of things and I don't, you know, I, I remember there was one book that I have is called Native Historians Write Back. And uh-huh. I, I'm trying to remember the guy's name and I'm blanking right now. But um, you can maybe put that in the show, show notes. notes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so there have been people that have, have kind of tried to do some of that, maybe not as much in anthropology, more, more so in like history. Um, but so the, I think there's a there's a lot um that we're doing well, but I, I still feel like that we're in the, the position that oftentimes native and indigenous students, when looking at options for what discipline to major in or where to go, like in the academic setting, still feel uh, uncomfortable with anthropology to some degree. Um, and some of that is informed by community members back home, um, either discouraging them from going into anthropology or um, just hearing stories about, you know, things that happened in the past in a negative light. Uh, Oftentimes, you know, anthropology is considered a four-letter word in Native (laughs) communities, you know, because in the past it's always been extractive. It's always been like people coming in and and, and from a Native perspective kind of like, stealing or taking knowledge right. out with without doing anything really to give back. And so uh, I think that's where kind of what we were talking about before about making research more more reciprocal. Right. Um, can I think if we build that more into our methodology and take that more seriously, that will start to change. And I think it has, you know, I think um, people are more open to uh, working with anthropologists now. And uh, some of some of those um, preconceived notions are, are shifting, but it takes a lot of work. And I think that's where, again, working with nat- native youth mm-hmm. and, and empowering them to find access points and um, career pathways into these kind of fields is really important because um, especially if you're being discouraged from going in down that road mm-hmm. um, by maybe family members or, or whoever, it could be tough um, to even see anthropology as a viable career, you know? So I I think trying to be more, what word I want to use for that, but 
very clear on trying to create those pathways is important. Mm -hmm. And so that, again, is part of what I'm trying to do at at Crow Canyon. Um, But then also there's some real fundamental issues that a lot of times people don't take into consideration, like how many archaeology departments or anthropology departments have classrooms that are in the same building as uh, collections facilities or where osteological remains are kept. Right. I mean, there are a lot of Native people that that physically that that learning space is not safe to go in because of its proximity to those remains. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, a real fundamental basic thing that people could do is not, well, for one, not have those collections. I mean, that would be repatriation. Yeah. I mean, put those back in the earth where they should be. Right. But certainly not have your classroom sitting on top of them. Right. Right. That would be not have them in the same building. Which is is also, if you're working for an agency, federal or state, that might be something that you should think about, too. Because there was one instance, I remember someone specifically pointing out to me that there was human remains in a building where tribes were being brought to for meetings. So not just universities, Mm -hmm. um, other people sometimes house human remains, too. So something to to keep in mind. Yeah, so taking those cultural and spiritual Mm -hmm. uh, concerns... um, Taking those seriously and and actually trying to make your space safe right. for people would right. be one basic first step. Right. Um, and and then doing doing things that people see benefit in, right? So I mean, right. one of the things that I think stands uh, or separates the Native American Studies Department at UNM from other departments is that they actively engage in research that benefits the communities that they work with, and that is a mm-hmm. part of their whole mission, the way they understand what their role in the academic uh, setting is, uh, you know, they're very specific about that and, and very conscious of training people to go back and do good work in their communities. Right. And uh, I don't hear as much of that kind of stuff in anthropology usually. Um, so I think those are, you know, rethinking some of those things mm-hmm. w- would be a good kind of first step. And I know uh, we had talked a little bit before about conferences right, and, right. and kind of those academic spaces outside of the um, the university setting. Um, I, I find that often at anthropology or uh, ethno history or, you know, whatever other disciplines um, mm-hmm. that touch on Native studies issues. Right. Um, Oftentimes, all the native panels will be put at the same time, so we can't go to each other's presentations. That's a real fundamental, like, and and I would like to think that that's not intentional, but it is a definite pattern that people see and have noticed, and it makes us feel like we're segregated to this one time slot, right? As opposed to having space within that that academic conference, mm-hmm. and um, I think that that has led people to. Uh, seek other or and create other academic uh, conference spaces, right? Right, so, right. Uh, I'm actively involved in NISA, the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association. And I think one of the things that is unique that feels very different about that conference as opposed to other types of conferences, you know, archaeology, anthropology, um, right whatever other types of conferences I've been to is that feels like an indigenous space. When you Mm -hmm. go to that conference, it's like a healing ceremony. Mm -hmm. Uh, We always have, you know, 
cultural presentations as a, as a fundamental aspect of the conference. We always open it usually with the local tribal entities or, or people that um, controlled that landscape in the past right. and kind of giving their blessing for the conference. There's always really beautiful uh, presentations um, and, and it just feels very different. It doesn't feel like you're at a colonial uh, mm-hmm. academic conference. It, you know, it right. feels like you're taking part in a healing ceremony and, and contributing to, um, in some cases, activist uh, research and, and mm-hmm. pushing, pushing boundaries um, in a lot of ways. And so that feels totally different. Uh, it is also probably the only conference I've ever been to where the majority of the conference participants and presenters are uh, Native or Indigenous, um, right. you know, of ancestry, you know, so right. it, it's it feels different to be in a academic conference space that is controlled by, run by, and populated by <laughs> Native right. Indigenous people, right. and and just the way the conference functions is totally different because of that, right? So, I guess is there something? I mean, for example, we've talked about uh, it was the triple A's, right? Where mm-hmm. there's there's a whole group of anthropologists that basically split out from the the rest of the conference oh sure that was that was uh, essentially before we had a section Mm -hmm. in the triple a because we didn't have a section for indigenous anthropologists until i mean i don't know when that was actually created but it wasn't that long ago Mm -hmm. so before that we kind of had a side meeting um at triple a um for for people that felt like they didn't really fit in at triple a i guess is the best way to to put it Uh uh-huh so I guess what would you take from from NASA or or this uh, separate group within AAAs that is now more of a formal group? Um, what would you take to the rest of the conferences that you think could be something that the rest of them could do to make it a, a safer space or um, have more of that that healing type of feeling? I guess that's tough. Yeah, that's tough because I mean AAA has tried to to reach out and do more. Um, I participated on a panel that was in honor of bee medicine. Um, I don't know. That was several years back at AAA. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not like they're not trying to um, incorporate more of that. I, I think it's tough with something like AAA because it's such a huge organization, such a huge conference. Right. And there's so few of us, you know, native or indigenous uh, scholars who are there at the conference that it's kind of, you know, I'm not sure how they could make AAA, mm-hmm. and may, maybe that's not the the point. Maybe making AAA feel like NASA is not really even mm-hmm. uh, is not a reasonable goal to have. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I would say is having that space uh, in, in NASA or NASA um, is important. So maybe mm-hmm. it's an addition okay. to instead of re- right. replacing right. or changing the the because I mean, let's be you know. Triple A is huge. There's right. and there's right. like ten thousand people or whatever. It's it is what it is. It's it's gonna be right. <laughs> this huge um, event, and the vast majority of the people there are non you know right are, are uh, white anthropologists, and right. that's just that's right. just the nature of the organization because that's the predominant nature of the field and the people that are in the field. So. Um, but I think it is important to have those spaces, whether it's a separate conference mm-hmm. or whatever, um, where people have a little bit more freedom and feel a little safer, um, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, and, and can have the space to develop 
their own methodology and their own research mm-hmm. um, and theory, you know, like it's important to have NISA because that's that that conference is really driving the development of um, indigenous theory mm-hmm. and, and practice. So mm-hmm. uh, I think sometimes it's good to have those spaces. Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a really good point. And, and I'm not not trying to pick on triple A's. Sure. <laughs> um, well, it is not unique to triple A's. Right, exactly. Like, I would imagine the whatever the mm-hmm. main, like, you know, MLA and the big mm-hmm. history association. Right, like, right. They're all going to be same, like that, you know. Yeah, same issues. So I guess um, maybe not so much replicating NASA, but but just making it a safe space. Is there is there anything that, you know, SAAs, SFAs, triple uh, A's, mm-hmm could do that would just make it feel safer a and b um you know like you said it's predominantly white anthropologists how do we make it more accessible to non-white anthropologists well yeah that gets that gets into how do you make the discipline more accessible i mean and part of that is you know some of those changes that that um those fundamental changes to the way the discipline is thought of. Right. Um, and a lot of that requires work in communities as well to, right. to make people um, aware of the different things that you can do within anthropology. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, like in the academic setting, you have a, a situation we often have people choosing between like anthropology or American studies or like, mm-hmm. like a native studies specific program or some right. kind of cultural studies program. Right. And, and, uh, I think in those cases, a lot of, or education, a lot of native people go into education too. Right. I noticed at UNM. Um, so making anthropology competitive within mm-hmm. that academic market for, right. um, you know, non-white uh, people. Right? right. I think, um, and a part of that, part of that is just making the discipline a little more welcoming and, mm-hmm. um, culturally relevant in the types of research we're doing. But right. to the, to get back to your earlier point about, what we can do at different conferences. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a movement and it comes out of kind of native studies uh, where people acknowledge the history of the landscape they're currently standing on when mm-hmm. they, when they open up um, whatever talk they're giving. Right. And this is a practice that's been done for a long time within native American and indigenous studies, but has not really been as common within anthropology. Um, so, I think that's a small step everyone can 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 do mm-hmm. um, in any kind of public presentation or conference presentation or whatever. Um, do some research, figure out where you are and whose traditional lands and uh, landscape mm-hmm. you're in. Right. Right. Um, sometimes that's not super straightforward uh, right. and can be very complicated. <laughs> right. But there are people that have developed maps and uh, resources, uh, and we'll try to put some of that in the show notes maybe. I know um, I've got a couple of links that I could give you for that, um, where people can go and and try to do a little research of whose land they're on. And I think, you know, foregrounding your presentation in that knowledge of the historic landscape that you're currently occupying, I think does, I mean, it seems like a small thing, but it really does change the tone uh, and nature of your presentation. And it makes Mm -hmm. you uh, mindful of, of whose lands you're on. Right. So I think that that's a real small thing everybody can do. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, that's something I'd like to see more in anthropology and archeology span as well. Right. 
Right. And, and another thing that, that we've talked about based on um, a recent experience is making sure that if you're having somebody present, so let's say you are somebody that hosts um, archaeology or anthropology talks um, or a conference, if there's a way that um, if there's going to be human remains or ancestors involved in this talk, making sure that that person has done adequate consultation in order to be able to speak at your venue, that basically um, we shouldn't be letting people do research on on human remains or ancestors um, without working with the tribes and that there, there should be some sort of, of, of consequence within the field because we've been talking about this for a long time and people are still doing it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and more forewarning if that material is going to be in a presentation, right. not mm-hmm. just like I've seen people put little notes on their first slide saying right. that there may be images of human remains in this right. presentation or something like that. Right. But um, and again, this gets back to taking native people's perspectives and um, sensitivities seriously. Right now, it, I may or may not see that on that slide, but if I have a cultural sensitivity towards seeing human remains, specifically if they are mm-hmm. ancestral to my own lineage, right? Like I really want to know so that I have time and I can evaluate whether I want to stay and and be um, right. You, you could even say assaulted with those images, you know? Right. Right. So I think that's very clearly something that needs to happen and. I don't necessarily think that everyone, I think the use of that kind of imagery is um, Mm -hmm. not always necessary. And I think some thought into, if you're going to put that kind of image in a presentation, it needs to be there for a real important reason. And and, and it needs to be very clear that that kind of imagery is going to be there because that again is a form of uh, structural violence against native people. And, and I, I, I get that most researchers may not see it that way but right. when you when you see a kid break down crying because an image of one of his ancestors was just put up on a screen to make some theoretical point right it it's a real thing and it really impacts people's lives and it makes those places feel unsafe to be right. so right. i mean if we're really serious about including native people in those conversations and in those environments and we got to fundamentally rethink some of those kind of mm-hmm. some of those kind of things Right. Yeah. And, and along those lines, I mean, not just presentations, you know, papers mm-hmm. um, and even just Facebook, for example. I mean, you see people post all kinds of, of things with human remains without, I don't think, really um, thinking through the the kind of impact that it can have. And, you know, I mean, there's there's a, again, there's ways to avoid it. There's even if it is on Facebook, if you don't have that picture be the, the picture mm-hmm. that shows up first and you put in that warning, there's there's ways to do it in a in a safe space. Um, just just takes a little bit of, of thought. Mm-hmm. OK, well, we are really at the end of our time. So is there anything that you want to close out with? No, I just, you know, if if there are any um, Native and Indigenous people out there listening to this podcast, uh, I, I, I want you to think about, you know, careers in anthropology and interpretation and uh, museum studies, because 
until we get into those rooms, until we get into those spaces and um, are a part of those conversations and decision making, uh, we we relegate the way our history is is told to uh, those that are currently there. And, and I think, you know, I think that that's an important form of activism in and of itself. I mean, um, we talk about um, faculty of color at universities and just being a faculty of color and being in those spaces is in, uh, you know, is in itself a form of activism. Right. Right. So. I would encourage people to not be discouraged and to consider these fields uh, as problematic as they might be um, as as potential uh, career paths, because I I really think that we have to get in there and uh, do that work if we want things to change. Right. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much for for coming on. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritage voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for a dollar 49 perfect with our classic fries price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer ba-da-ba-ba-ba so.